This issue of Nil Desperandum is rated PG for mild language and mature situations. Nil Desperandum 10 Quintotius Quintodius This is our first collection of flash fiction, something a bit different for us. Rather than a single story, this issue is a collection of four flash pieces by four different authors. First, Regarding Emma, by Elizabeth Barton. Elizabeth Barton is an award-winning Chicago-based writer. Her work has appeared in Skirt Magazine, WomenOnWriting.com, and the Journal of Ordinary Thought. Our narrator is Julie Sigwert of the BadgerCast. Regarding Emma by Elizabeth Barton As a parent-to-be, you hope your child will be perfect. Of course, you know she won't be, but that's okay. She'll cry and keep you awake half the night. She'll spill things on the rug. She'll lie and talk back, and she'll rebel against you when she's a teenager, no matter if you're a permissive parent or if you run your house like a military unit. John and I expected all of that normal kid stuff. We thought we were going into parenthood with our eyes open. It wouldn't always be a picnic, but we would weather the hard times because the good times would make it all worthwhile. Our child wouldn't be perfect, but she would be ours, and we would love her. My pregnancy was trying, to say the least. For one thing, my morning sickness wasn't confined to the morning. I was sick more often than I wasn't, but that was just the tip of the iceberg. I developed a terrible rash on my stomach. It itched and burned so much there were times when I wanted to claw through my belly. At first I was told that it was some kind of heat rash, but the usual remedies did nothing, and the rash didn't subside when the weather turned cooler. My doctors were stumped. The rash didn't change, didn't spread. Some women have unusual reactions to pregnancy, they shrugged and said to me. Once the baby started kicking, she rarely stopped. I could hardly get a moment of rest as she twitched and flailed within me. Oh, she's an active one, isn't she, Dr. Morgan, my OBGYN, noted during one of my checkups, when Emma seemed to be trying to kick her way out of my womb. Yes, it never stops, I said. Dr. Morgan chuckled. She thought I was exaggerating. I know it certainly can seem that way sometimes, can't it, she said. No, I'm serious. She never stops. But right then, as if to prove me wrong, the baby stopped kicking. I came off as the nutty, hormonal, anxious first-timer who thought her pregnancy was worse than anyone else in history. All tests suggested that nothing was medically wrong with Emma. She would be a perfectly healthy, normal baby. Things would be fine if I could just get through the remainder of those awful nine months. Alas, the mystery didn't end with the pregnancy. From just about the minute Emma was born, it was clear that she was different. When the nurse drained her mouth just after she entered the world, Emma began to scream. It wasn't the typical newborn baby cry. It was an ear-piercing, bone-chilling shriek, like she was being torn apart. And then, just as suddenly, she was totally silent. The doctor and nurses exchanged nervous glances. Physically, Emma seemed fine, but everyone in that room knew something was wrong. John was at my side when the nurse handed Emma to me, and I held her for the first time. I had waited so long for that moment. After more than a year of trying and then nine months of torturous pregnancy, I was finally going to hold my precious little girl. 
Perhaps I had built up such high expectations for the moment that nothing ever could have lived up to them. But when Emma was gently placed into my arms, it wasn't just that I didn't feel the rush of total elation I had expected. I actually felt my heart fall. I had heard some women say that they wished the moment they first held their child could have lasted forever, but I wanted it to be over as soon as it had started. What the hell was wrong with me? Could this be some weird side effect of the pain meds? Was it too early for postpartum depression? Was I just an awful, cold person who was unfit to have a child? I told myself that I was probably just freaking out about being someone's mother. After all, my life was never going to be the same. But still, I was sure it would be better. I just needed to calm down and take things one step at a time. I held Emma for a few minutes, hoping the whole time that it would start to feel right. It didn't. My face must have given me away. Honey, are you all right? John said. I forced a smile. I'm fine. I'm just exhausted. That had to be the problem. I'd feel normal again once I had some rest. Do you want to hold her for a bit? John gingerly lifted Emma from my arms. As he held her, I watched his face slowly change from surprise and confusion to concern and then to panic. It wasn't just me. Our eyes met. We silently asked each other the same questions. What is wrong with our little girl? What is wrong with us? That first day was only the beginning. Emma spent most of her infancy alternating between shrieking and eerie silence. I tried to breastfeed her, but I physically could not do it. It was as if my milk shrank away in horror. In a way, I was relieved. I hated myself for it, but the thought of several months of nursing Emma made me nauseous. John and I both got used to holding Emma in the way you would get used to a dull, chronic pain. Whenever friends asked to hold her, we quickly handed her over, grateful for the reprieve. No matter who held her, the reaction was always the same. A look of shock was followed by the sudden embrace of a pressing task that needed to be done or the abrupt development of a scratchy throat or some other ailment that the baby shouldn't be exposed to. Emma was then handed back hastily. Eventually, people just stopped asking to hold her. No one ever spoke ill of Emma to our faces, though. You just don't tell new parents that holding their daughter makes your blood run cold. At least we could take solace in the fact that it wasn't just us. When she was an infant, Emma couldn't do much harm. It was easier to dismiss the feeling that something was wrong with her. But the older she got, the harder it was to ignore that she was not like other kids. Kids wrecked their toys. They usually don't mean to, but sometimes playthings just aren't built to last. So I expected broken toys here and there. I hadn't expected 15 decapitated dolls and stuffed animals. When I walked into Emma's room one day when she was six years old, that was what I found. The heads were lined up in a neat little row on Emma's bed, and the bodies were in a jumbled pile in the corner. What's this, Emma? I asked as calmly as I could. I had gotten pretty good at disguising my horror. It's my collection. I knew they were only dolls, but what the heck kind of sick kid tears the heads off of her toys and makes a collection out of them? Was I overreacting, or was this another sign that my daughter really was a monster? But honey, why don't you just keep a collection of whole dolls? Why just the heads, I asked. Emma seemed confused by the question. I like tearing them apart, she said matter-of-factly, as if the answer would have been obvious to me. Perhaps I should have pressed her further and tried to figure out why she liked destroying her dolls, but I must admit that I was afraid of what else I might discover, and I didn't think I could stand to be more afraid of my own daughter than I already was. Originally, John and I had planned to have at least two kids, but once Emma was born, we knew we couldn't handle another one like her. 
Even if our second child was normal and totally unlike Emma, we were more than a little afraid of what kind of horrors Emma might inflict on her or him. John got a vasectomy. Please don't think that I gave up on Emma without trying. I took her to more counselors than I could count. As awful as she was, she was also brilliant. She deceived all the doctors and therapists by telling them what they wanted to hear. I'm pretty sure that deep down every one of them knew something was wrong with Emma. I think everyone who met Emma got that feeling, but she said all the right things, and no doctor is going to tell parents that their child is simply creepy. We tried Emma on about half the drugs on the market by the time she was eight years old. Eventually, she decided she was done with all that. I'm not taking these anymore, she calmly told me one morning when I set a glass of juice and her dose of Ritalin in front of her on the table. Come on now, it's for your own good. Even as I said it, I knew it probably didn't matter. Just like all the other medications, the Ritalin didn't seem to be doing any good. She picked up the juice, but instead of drinking it and taking her pill, she threw the glass at my face. It hit me in the mouth, cutting my lip. As I stood there bleeding and dripping with orange juice, Emma gave me a hollow, cold stare of someone who just might kill me if only she were a little bigger and stronger. Not surprisingly, Emma had no real friends. But that did not seem to bother her. It was of constant concern to her teachers, but oddly enough, Emma didn't get into the serious trouble at school. I think that was merely because she was too smart to get caught. There were incidents. Katie Wilson was rushed to the emergency room after eating a cookie that had crystal drain cleaner mixed in with the sprinkles on top. When she was asked where she got the cookie, Katie said that it had just been in her lunchbox. Her parents were investigated, but eventually cleared. Old Mary Perkins from down the street came to our house with flyers one day. Her cat had gone missing. He must have seen a critter or something that got him awfully excited because it looks like he clawed right through the window screen. About a week later, Mary went to the basement to get some ice cream and found her cat in the freezer. I think everyone, including John and me, believed Emma was to blame for all of these things and more, but no one had any proof. Emma denied any involvement, and I left it at that. I know I was in denial, but who would want to believe that their daughter could do such horrible things? If only I had been braver, maybe I could have helped her or at least convinced a doctor that she needed to be locked up where she couldn't do anyone harm. But people don't just lock their kids away without hard evidence that they've done something pretty awful. Now you have that evidence. John and I will live the rest of our days with the knowledge that we didn't do enough and three people are dead because of it. If I could turn back the clock and do something, anything, that would have prevented all of this, I would. Of course, I can't do that, and that is why I am urging you, the jury, to give Emma the maximum sentence for her crimes. I beg of you, lock her up and never let her out. Next, we present Casey's Hope by Alexandra Seidel. Alexandra describes herself as being really fond of both Edgar Allan Poe and Mother Goose. She has had stories and poems published in Sybil's Garage, Starline, Scheherazade's Bequest, and The Horror Zine. This story previously appeared in Residential Aliens. Our narrator is Aaron McFall, resident doyen of the Bear Crawling Nation, and AaronSaves.com Casey's Hope by Alexandra Siddell When Casey left, she didn't take her hope with her. Instead, the hope was on the kitchen table, waiting there for me when I got back from work and found Casey gone. 
I didn't bother looking for her because Casey had always talked about leaving, but I couldn't understand why she would leave her hope. At first, I didn't touch it. Touching somebody else's hope would have felt awkward, but it was in the way when I wanted to eat breakfast at the kitchen table and then I spilled my coffee over it. I looked at the hope in the caramel-colored puddle of coffee and wasn't sure at first what I should do. I could just leave it there to dry on its own, but somehow the hope looked sad, and so I took it over to the kitchen sink and rinsed it, then dried it with a soft towel and put it on the kitchen chair Casey had used when she had still been here. It seemed very appropriate. It took me several months to decide that Casey wasn't coming back. In my heart of hearts, I had kept hoping that she would, but she didn't. It took me several months to decide that Casey wasn't coming back. In my heart of hearts, I had kept hoping that she would, but she didn't. Since the coffee incident, I hadn't touched her hope even once. It was still sitting in the chair. I had, however, begun to talk to it. At first, I had asked it questions, but it wouldn't answer, of course. Then I would have whole conversations with the silent hope, filling in for the voiceless bundle of emotion. I tried saying what Casey would have said, I suppose, if she had been there. A cold winter and a hot summer passed before I felt the hope was warming to me. It seemed responsive to my conversations, although how I cannot say. I sometimes felt it staring at me when I wasn't looking, almost as if it felt lonely too. The hope had probably also decided that Casey wasn't coming back. Some time in fall, while I was having breakfast, I wondered where my own hope was. I wasn't certain that I had had one, but I felt that I must have misplaced it later and forgotten about it completely. Casey's hope, on the other hand, was growing. The hope soon grew too big for the kitchen chair. I didn't want to touch it, but I saw that it would have to be moved sooner or later. Reluctantly, I decided to put it on Casey's side of the bed. Since the hope was now in our bed, I got used to talking to it before I switched off the lights at night, and also when I woke up in the mornings. At first, it was just a bulbous boil under the sheets, but it was growing again. One night, it grew so big that I thought it would throw me out of the bed with its sheer size, but it didn't. It pulled back gently and lay huddled against my back until I fell asleep. It must have been sometime between Christmas and New Year's when I decided to adopt Casey's Hope. It had gotten very attached anyways and seemed so alone. I let Casey's Hope crawl over me and find its way through the pores of my skin, into my body, and from the blood vessels and muscles and bones. It came into my mind. I think it was comfortable there. One morning when I was having breakfast at my kitchen table, I suddenly realized that Casey must have left her own hope and taken mine accidentally. It was the only explanation that made any sense. A year ago, I would have tried to find her and get my own hope back, but as things were now, I was content. Casey's hope felt warm on my mind and happy. I looked at Casey's chair, the chair her hope had sat in for so long, and I felt it stirring in my mind then hoping fervently that Casey was at peace with my hope just as I was with hers, wherever she might be. Our third piece is Counterculture by Elizabeth Creeth. Mrs. Creeth has a children's book, Eric the Viking Sheep, which was published by Scholastic Canada and for ten years she has written humor and commentary for CBC Radio. She has had stories published or accepted by The Linnet's Wings, New Myths, Chicken Soup for the Soul, Silver Blades, and Thema. Her flash piece, Companion Animal, placed 12th in the Writers' Union of Canada 2008 Postcard Fiction Contest. Our narrator is Charlene Huang-Roberts. 
co-host of the Gag the Manager podcast. Counterculture by Elizabeth Kreef. My mother counted things. It wasn't that she always knew exactly how many towels or pillowcases she had, how many in the wash, in use, or still in the linen cupboard. Those were things she kept to herself. She played number games with her knitting. I'd hear her sometimes when she didn't know I was listening. 164th, she'd say. 132nd, 364 116th, and so on. A string of numbers that made no sense to me then. And then on the next row, she'd start over. She counted things in public, too. For example, if we went to a restaurant, she counted the tables, calculated the number of people that place would seat. Then she would figure out the percentage of seats that were filled, or the percentage that the five of us filled. When my brother was still a baby, and a waitress had to bring out a high chair for him, she had to recalculate. After she could sit in a normal chair, she never did. Now, she wasn't obnoxious about it. She didn't stand in the entrance and shout, 53 people! This restaurant holds 53 people! She didn't even say to the waiter or waitress, You are currently serving 9.4% of the capacity of this restaurant, and 38% of the present customers. She'd simply pause for a few seconds in the doorway, glance around as though looking for a table she'd like, and then murmur, 53. A few seconds later, she would have the percentage figures, saying them almost under her breath. Even when I couldn't hear her, I knew she said it, because of how Dad turned his head and glanced away. I knew it bothered him, although I never understood why. I thought it was just one of those things, like men watch baseball, women count things. I thought it was normal. That's why it surprised me that the day after Mom's funeral, my sister said, Did you know Mom counted things? Like windows and buildings and tables and restaurants? How weird was that? So I didn't tell her, after all, that there had been 134 people at the church and that 86% of them had come to the cemetery. And when I take out my knitting, I play the lowest common denominator game quietly in my head. And finally, A Drink, The Devil, and My Mother by Lisa Gurney. Lisa quit her Fortune 500 job to pursue her dream of writing. Since then, her fiction and essays have been published both in print and online in the United States and Canada. She is the recipient of the 2007 National PRNDI Award for Commentary for her essay, A Witness to Violence. Lisa resides in Worcester, Massachusetts. A Drink, The Devil, and My Mother by Lisa Gurney One evening very late, I arose from bed to find my mother sitting at the kitchen table. Part of her face was illuminated by a small light over the stove, the other cast in gloomy shadow. A clear glass filled with chestnut-colored liquid sat in front of her, and the sweet and sour smell of alcohol floated from her skin and filled the room. I had become familiar with the scent since my father's death a few months earlier. She smiled when she saw me, and I did too. Then she said something, and my smile vanished. 
I love the devil. What, mummy? I said, a crackle of fear spreading through me. I said I love the devil, and she giggled. At eight years old, I knew who the devil was. Raised in a Catholic family and taught by Franciscan priests and nuns, my books in school showed me his creepy face, smiling crookedly when he speared his victims. I knew of his power. And he had my mother. Next he would have me too. I crumpled onto my behind and scooted away from her, my back pressed hard against the kitchen cabinets as I stole quick glances at my demon mother. She never looked at me, just continued taking mechanical sips from her glass. Call the church, I thought. Get up and call the church. I shot to my feet and yanked open the tiny kitchen drawer that held pens, matches, and my mother's thin plastic phone book. I'm going to call the church, I said. Okay, mommy? No longer smiling, she said, yes, call the church, Lisa. She spoke in a bare whisper, jagged with pain, and her head slumped forward. The absence of her previous bravado somehow frightened me more. I found the number, grabbed a kitchen chair, and dragged it to our old, flesh-colored wall phone. My feet got tangled in my nightgown as I climbed to reach it. I balanced the receiver under my ear and squinted to see the numbers in the semi-darkness. After a year's worth of rings, the pastor of the church answered in a thick voice. Hello, St. Leonard's. Father, my mother is drinking and she says she loves the devil, I screamed. Tears came in warm streaks. What do I do, Father? Please help me. I've tried all these years later to remember his first response. But the details are gone, beyond my reach somewhere. The next memory, however, is quite vivid. My mother held the phone loosely to her ear and murmured into it. I waited with bald fists, my bare feet rooted to the cold linoleum floor. She mentioned my father's death and that she had indeed been drinking. She shifted in her chair and the plastic cushioned seat crunched. I could hear pieces of the father's tinny and faraway responses, but one sentence rang through clearly. You are scaring your daughter. When he said that, my mother glanced at me. Her brow crinkled in annoyance, the way it did when I demanded too much of her attention. Then her face softened. I'm sorry, Lisa. After a while, my mother handed the phone back to me. Look for the bottles and empty them all. Can you do that, Lisa? The priest asked. The priest asked. Yes, Father, I answered, though my heart sank. I didn't want any more responsibility that night. I just wanted to be safe. I wanted to feel the way I did before my father died, completely protected, undeniably loved, and free to be a child. Your mother is okay now, he said. Thank you, father, I whispered. But my mother wasn't okay, not completely. Throughout the years, I continued to take responsibility for her. I learned to manage my fear when she drank and never again called the church as I became quite adept at finding and emptying bottles. And though the devil never returned to have a drink with my mother, I sometimes felt him lurking about, always ready to pull us into hell. Nil Desperandum is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. Our editor and publisher is Jim Phillips. An audio production is in cooperation with the Bear Crawling Nation. 
engineer Hugh Morrison, and executive producer Charles McFall. We are entirely listener-supported, so if you have enjoyed these or any of our stories, please visit www.ndstories to leave a donation and a comment.